1: It's Wednesday, September 7th, 2022, the 595th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release In order to do that, you must be a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do that for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. You will be supporting me and the work I do and this show as it expands. But if you don't want to or you're not able to, it all comes out a couple days later for free. So just do whatever makes you happy. Now, this morning on The War Room there was a really interesting segment and i want to touch on a couple pieces of it and the first piece of that is this
2: this is what some mexicans are calling modern colonialism the heavy influx of americans moving to mexico city to take advantage of lower living costs other locals are calling it gentrification a plague or even an invasion
0: what behind you
2: (laughs) <laughs> oh my God! You're thinking of moving to Mexico City? Wow! One simple recommendation. Dot com. Gentrification is the name of the game. Critics say the flood of Americans has caused an increase in the cost of basic necessities for locals. Rent has more than doubled for some. This is not to mention that Mexico City residents already spend an average of 60% of their income on housing. The same people moving are the same ones who complain when immigrants come to America of course, natives are upset as they should be. Many Americans moving to Mexico City are working remotely and still getting paid in U.S. dollars. Some locals have benefited from increasing tourism, but for many, that doesn't balance out rising costs and inflation. Mexicans are also fed up with Americans ignoring cultural and social norms. And some complain that in certain places, English is more common than Spanish. Local businesses are being forced to shut down and replaced by cafes and Pilates studios. People who live in Mexico City and people who work in Mexico City, including myself, we want to get a place but it's really difficult because the prices are so high and even with a good salary, it's very difficult you're still bragging about how cheap it is and how it's not even like a quarter of your rent in L.A. And it's messed
1: up, right? So that was originally posted on Twitter by AJ Plus, which is Al Jazeera's social media publishing arm. Their Twitter bio reads AJ Plus is a unique digital news and storytelling project promoting human rights and equality holding power to account and amplifying the voices of the powerless. And one would have to imagine that that is what they are attempting to do here. They are relaying the problem of white Americans moving to Mexico City to have a more affordable lifestyle in a place that I guess they must enjoy. And of course, the shift to work from home and remote work that was taken up by a certain segment of the population during the COVID pandemic enables a certain type of worker to work from anywhere. And so sometimes they choose other countries. And as one might expect for any place other than the United States of America, when a bunch of foreigners move into a city, And begin to transform that city into what they like, disrespecting the customs of the city or of the culture in general, speaking their own language rather than the native language of the people who occupy that city, changing the city's economy, making the place less affordable for the people who actually occupied that city, people who are citizens of the country that city is in. You can expect that the natives might be a little upset about that, and it turns out that Mexicans are upset about that. And of course, AJ Plus is all about human rights, and so they understand this as a crucial issue. The last thing you want is white Americans going to another place and making that place more like white America. And as long as we're talking about white Americans, it's not racist. It's not racist for the girl making the joke in the TikTok video, which I know you can't see, but you heard at the beginning when they were pretending to be scared. It was a girl at a restaurant turning around and seeing white Americans behind her and being like, oh, no. And it actually says white Americans on her TikTok. That's what's printed out. That's what's written onto the video. As the caption, but it's not racist because only white Americans can be racist as ah, some white Europeans can be racist, too. But Ukrainians can't, especially when they're in the middle of an ethnic civil war. But again, we don't talk about that. It is rather confusing that they use the same term for white Americans modernizing and quote unquote taking over urban environments in the United States. They're using that same term for white Americans, supposedly, doing the same thing in Mexico City. And I'm talking, of course, about gentrification. And if you were to strip that word of its cultural connotations within the woke dialogue in America, the definition, according to Merriam-Webster, and I understand Merriam-Webster switches the definitions of words all the time, including the word definition. But they write a process in which a poor area, as of a city, experiences an influx of middle class or wealthy people who renovate and rebuild homes and businesses, and which often results in an increase in property values and the displacement of earlier, usually poorer residents. And it's okay to have mixed feelings on gentrification because it is a complicated subject. On one hand, the residents of those neighborhoods, if they are poorer, if they are of minority ethnicities, as they are when this is described in America, but clearly not when it's in Mexico, their economic lives may substantially improve if they own their home. Because the housing values are driven up and maybe they've been in their home for decades and they are able to get more than they could have ever imagined their home would be worth and they go start a different life somewhere else. Or maybe they just stay and allow the community to change around them and allow their property values to continue to rise. That's the sort of decisions they make on their own. I remember a conversation a few years ago when I was in Los Angeles with an Uber driver who was driving me around, and he was telling me about how hard he works. He's on the road for 14 hours a day or so, works his ass off. But the house that he owns was worth about $800,000, and he had never expected it to ever be that high. It was his parents' house before it was his, and he has this great asset and he's just kind of determining what to do with it. But he has that there and he lives on what he makes driving and he seemed to really enjoy his job. Very nice guy. On the other hand, if you don't own your home or you don't own the land that your business is on, rent prices might go out of control and force you to leave that neighborhood and maybe end up living far away from the place that you've worked for years or decades or whatever. But either way, the feel of the community, the culture in that community is destined to change once that process begins. Now, there might not be any way to prevent that process. And the truth is that the people who talk about how bad that process is have no interest in preventing it they actually do want to force people out of those urban environments because they believe that the property is so valuable to them and they're going to use it so much better than these poor people who currently live there. And as rent prices are exploding around the entire country and investment groups like BlackRock and Vanguard are buying up real estate, all across the country. You can see all of this as part of a larger plan. The idea that gentrification is automatically racist makes no sense. It's not something that white people do. It's something that urban money does. This is one of the obvious hypocrisies of global progressivism. They pretend that all of this stuff is bad and they don't like it. They don't support it. They are good, affluent white people who are constantly looking out for the good of poor black and brown people. But also they continue to vote for the policies and politicians that make more of this because they want progress. They want modernization and they want urbanization. You can look into the plans of the United Nations and the World Economic Forum, and you can find that they believe. And when they say they believe or that they project something to be true, they mean that is the world they're creating. But they say they believe that the populations of city centers will double by 2050. They have active plans in place to get people out of rural environments and move them to urban environments because they want the land in rural communities. And you can see this in their efforts to displace farmers around the world. They want that land. They want to farm that land or use that land however they see fit. There is no justification from the globalist perspective to allow family farmers to own hundreds of acres of land or even thousands of acres of land. That's for Jeff Bezos. That's for China, because they're the ones who are going to use it the right way. And it's funny in that video, because there is a black woman that talks about how the same people who don't want immigration into the United States are the ones moving to Mexico City. Now, I have strong doubts about that. People who are opposed to immigration in the United States for a wide range of reasons, none of which are the hatred of brown people, are not generally the people who will move to a foreign country, choose a sprawling metropolis like Mexico City, and then begin setting up cafes and Pilates studios. No one wants them anywhere. And I understand that, but it's not extremist MAGA Republicans who are fleeing the country and trying to make the place they land become more like America. It doesn't even make sense. And it doesn't even make sense for all the young progressives doing that, except nothing they do makes sense and nothing they do has to make sense. They hate America enough to want to leave, but once they get to their destination, they want to turn that destination into something more like America. Because life is better when everything is a coffee shop or a Pilates studio or an Apple store or a Lululemon store. But to pretend that this is just some problem of white Americans going to other countries is totally disingenuous. This is part of a global plan to modernize and urbanize societies. And you can see this happening in American cities all over the place. Obviously, most of my experience is in Los Angeles, and you can see all of this taking effect in Los Angeles. You can see this happening in cities all around the country. They will begin eliminating parking spaces, saying that they need more trees in the city. So they will build out the sidewalks and plant trees in them. And all of a sudden, you can't drive downtown anymore without paying an arm and a leg to park. And then they go further. They take the remaining parking spaces and begin setting up electric car charging stations at those spaces and reserving them for electric cars or Maybe you remember when they tried those city bike programs and they had the city bike racks out there. I never saw anyone use one of those things. Or what about the zip car that you just rent and drive around for a little while? Never saw anyone use one of those either. But there are places you can't park because they need them for the zip cars. I was back in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago and I met a bar owner friend of mine at a building... That used to contain a club that I opened with a friend of mine back in 2010, I think. And next to that club, there was a parking lot and that parking lot could fit maybe 200 cars. During the day, they would have monthly renters who would rent those parking spots, come in and park during the day, go to their jobs, and then they would take those cars and go home. And then at night, that parking lot would be used for people that wanted to come and go out to clubs or restaurants or to see a show or whatever. And they would pay $10 or $15 or $20 to park in those spots. Well, that parking lot is all gone. And in its place is a, what looks like a four story building currently being built that stretches throughout that entire parking lot. The parking lot basically encompassed two lots So the building spans across that city block from one street to the next. And now there's no place for those 200 cars that would have parked there. And if you repeat this enough times, people will simply stop driving their cars to these downtown areas. And over the last eight or nine years, almost all of the car traffic at night, has been replaced with Uber traffic in terms of that part of Hollywood. People will just call an Uber so that they can go out rather than taking their car. Now, that makes it more expensive to go out, which means people will go out less and stay home more. And that will eventually harm all of the businesses that depend on people being around at night to patronize them. And as gas prices rise something that is controllable by the people in power, the Uber prices rise. It makes it even more unlikely that people are going to spend their money and go out, especially when the price of everything else is rising as well, which further harms all of those businesses. I said after getting back from LA a couple of weeks ago on this show that it was really strange and disturbing to drive down Melrose Avenue in the early evening, 8.30 or 9 at night, and just see no lights on anywhere, just shops closed, shutters down, no foot traffic anywhere. And so all of these businesses that used to depend on car traffic and foot traffic, people happily coming into Hollywood to spend their evenings, that stuff goes away. And with it, the businesses and the prices of Ubers keep rising. And then we decide we're going to switch to electric cars. But of course, they can't keep the lights on in California. So how are you going to power the electric cars? And of course, in Los Angeles, public transportation is not really an option for most things. And it's certainly not a good option for just about anything. And so through that subtle shift in culture that happens over the course of maybe 10 years, you're able to effectively change what people are able to do and how they're able to interact with their cities. And of course, they know that some segment of the population is going to decide that having a car is no longer necessary or worth it, and they'll get rid of their car. And then they become mostly immobile. And what happens if their job in their local community goes away? Well, now it's too far to go to get to work, so you have to find another job or you have to move. And slowly but surely, they change the entire culture of a city and make it more like what they want it to be in the future. And the whole time they call it progress. They say it's going to help with climate change and pollution. They pretend it's going to help with crime and various other things. This is going to make it the perfect city of the future. Just not for anyone who lives there. These plans are not a product of white Americans or even white American progressives, although they do certainly support these programs while saying they don't. It's a product of the globalization and the plans of the global communists at the World Economic Forum or the UN. All of them have these urbanization plans. They have plans for what the cities of the future are will be. And as always, you can see these plans for yourself. They're not hiding them. They're not bashful about what they want to do. You can go to unhabitat.org slash WCR and see their World Cities Report, Envisaging the Future of Cities. And I will share with you the introduction. World Cities Report 2022, Envisaging the Future of Cities seeks to provide greater clarity and insights into the future of cities based on existing trends, challenges and opportunities, as well as disruptive conditions, including the valuable lessons from the covid-19 pandemic and suggest ways that cities can be better prepared to address a wide range of shocks and transition to sustainable urban futures. The report proposes a state of informed preparedness that provides us with the opportunity to anticipate change, correct the course of action, and become more knowledgeable of the different scenarios or possibilities that the future of cities offers. So all of this is said with the suggestion, the implication that cities are just naturally changing in this direction. And so, As a global community, we need to know how to respond to these natural changes that are occurring, not changes they're producing and funding and implementing and planning. No, just natural changes that we as mature leaders of the global community need to respond to. And more of that in just a second. But AJ Plus, Al Jazeera's, little social media arm who cares so much about human rights has no problem whatsoever in publishing a blatantly racist little report about the invasion, the plague of white Americans moving in to Mexico City. Now, it is not okay to call millions and millions of immigrants from 150 countries around the world flooding into the united states illegally an invasion you're not allowed to say that saying that is racist and you definitely can't call it a slave trade even though all of those people are being brought here with a well-funded program participated in by the global communists and the leaders of the countries involved under the global communist order in coordination with Mexican drug cartels. You can't call it a slave trade no matter what because we are told those people are simply fleeing climate change. They're not being forced or incentivized to leave their small villages from around Central America and South America or literally anywhere across the world once we're talking about 150 countries. You can't call it a slave trade even though women and children are raped, even though Tons and tons, literally tons of illegal drugs are being pushed through that border. Human trafficking, child trafficking, child sex trafficking. All of that is just part of the process. And it's necessary because these people are being forced to leave by climate change, of course, not by the global cartel. It's just climate change. The U.N. reports actually call it forced migration, which is definitely not a slave trade because, again, they're being forced by climate change, not the global order and the cartels that they work with and fund. It's climate change. So you can't call it any of that when it's happening on America's border. But if you go the opposite direction, if Americans Leave America because of economic conditions, if they become themselves economic migrants or simply people who are looking for what they deem to be a better life somewhere else, that's an invasion. That's a plague. The last thing any of these countries need or want is white Americans. And because this is so hypocritical and because it makes absolutely no sense, every Biden voter, every young communist, will convince themselves that because there's no possible way that their side could ever be doing something bad, they will assume that both of their hypocritical and self-defeating claims are simultaneously true and they are still the good guys. It is, on one hand, racist to point out the problems of illegal immigration if you are in the United States, but on the other hand, It is racist not to point out the immigration going other places from the United States. Even though the logic of both and the claims made in both cases are exactly the same. Now, I should be clear. I don't have any problem with the citizens of Mexico and the people of Mexico City being upset about the fact that their city, their community, is being transformed and being set up to be more comfortable for foreigners who don't respect their culture, don't speak their language, and in every sense want to take over the culture of the area and replace that area's culture with their own. Everyone everywhere is more than welcome to prefer the culture they're accustomed to their own customs, their own language. That is totally natural. And if they want to make their communities or their country, their culture more of a melting pot, like America brags about being, good for them. That is totally up to them as well. But they shouldn't have to like it. And it turns out they don't have to like it because they're not Americans. Only Americans have to like it. If it's happening in reverse somewhere, well, then it's called modern colonialism. You see, because woke progressives who don't like America moving elsewhere to make that place more like America is apparently colonizing. And do they mean that these woke progressives are going to actually try to make Mexico City an American colony? Of course not. But you can just go to Merriam-Webster and see the newest definition for colonization and listed under D under the Merriam-Webster definition is the act or practice of appropriating something that one does not own or have a right to. And that's more of the definition they're actually using. They're going down and changing Mexican culture. They're making part of Mexican culture theirs, and they're replacing other parts with American culture, which is apparently the profusion of cafes and Pilates studios for an American to say any of these things. That's racist. But for A.J. plus to put out this little video report on their little social media arm. This is protecting the human rights of the citizens of Mexico and the people of Mexico City. Within the false reality, all of this makes perfect sense. But there's one more part of the war room segment. This is a discussion with Steve Cortez where he is discussing an article that was printed in the New York Times yesterday. The headline is Biden administration has admitted one million migrants to await hearings. Now, here's a little clip from Cortez on war room.
2: Right, on average, seven years. That is according to the New York Times, on average, that is how long they are going to wait to get a hearing decision, seven years. And in the meantime, again, I think this is incredibly important. Let's go back to Portland, Maine, a town of only 66,000 people. This is what Portland, Maine is doing right now. Taxpayers paying for this. Two, and I'm quoting from the New York Times article, 200 housing units
1: for asylum seekers in the Portland area are being constructed to provide rental assistance for two years, for two years. Not for Americans, not for working class Americans who are having a hard time because of the Biden recession and the Biden inflation explosion. No, for foreign nationals who come from, by the way, 150 countries in total. Steve, there are not 150 countries in the world that are oppressive to their own citizens. That just does not exist. That alone uh, reveals the scam that is at work here. So let's get a little more of that article. This is from The New York Times. Though Maine has only seen a small portion of the asylum seekers who have crossed the border, what its nonprofits and state and local government agencies are doing to help them is likely unmatched anywhere in the country. More than 700 families seeking asylum have come to the Portland area since January 2021. 700 families, most of whom fled the Democratic Republic of Congo or Angola. What? Southern Maine has welcomed them with months of free housing and other assistance, filling a void left by a federal system that lets them stay in the country temporarily, but provides neither financial help nor swift permission to work. Can you imagine how cruel our federal government is to bring in all of these illegal immigrants and then not give them financial help or swift permission to work? Thank goodness that responsible Democrat run cities around the country, and I'm sure some GOP establishment run cities around the country, are able to step in and fill that void and make up for the needs of these poor asylum families. Most of the families at the hotel in South Portland will be able to stay for a year, receiving assistance for housing, food, medical care, and their immigration cases from case managers and volunteers. Portland has used state funds and federal emergency shelter dollars to help cover costs. From January 2021 through this June, the city spent $40 million on asylum seekers. Officials describe it as both a humanitarian gesture and a down payment on the future of the state which has the oldest and one of the whitest populations in the country and employers who are often desperate to fill jobs. Wait a second. So Portland, Portland, Maine, has one of the oldest and whitest populations in the country. Well, what is the problem with it being white? It's not allowed to be white. Does Portland, Maine have some policy that prohibits Black and brown or maybe yellow. Oh, wait, we can't call Asians yellow. We can just call black people black and Hispanic people or others brown. Can't call Asians yellow, though. Got to remember that. Sorry. But are we supposed to pretend that they have some policy that doesn't allow people from non-white ethnicities to live in Portland, Maine? That's definitely not the case. So why is it a problem that Portland, Maine is white? Do they need to be balanced out with foreign asylum seekers? Is that really where we are? We need to correct a racial imbalance in an American city by bringing in foreigners of minority ethnicities. That's the goal. Balance out the racial ratio. There's a quota. Who decided that? When was that decided? An explicitly racist policy and we're all supposed to applaud? Because in the false reality, that's progress. Now, they may well have one of the oldest populations, but I would imagine that is just a marginal difference. Either way, the implication here is that this aging population is no longer able to be productive in Portland, Maine. They're not giving out enough. They're not supplying enough productivity for the community to use. So they need to be replaced in one way or another with more productive workers. And because the population is too white, hopefully these more productive workers will be black and brown in the false reality. It's not racist. It makes sense. It's just smart planning. You have to replace the old white population with a younger ethnic minority population. But that's not replacement theory. And the New York Times didn't just admit that because talking about replacement theory is obviously racist. And I would never do that. And neither would the New York Times, even though they just did. In 2019, the last time there was a spike in irregular migration. More than 300 families, also largely from Angola and the Democratic Republic of Congo, came to southern Maine. Many are working legally while they wait for their cases to proceed. Their presence has helped draw newcomers and made the region better prepared to handle influxes of migrants. You see, as you bring in more migrants, your community becomes better prepared to handle influxes of more migrants. The solution to being unable to deal with migrants is bring in more migrants. It makes sense in the false reality. Last year, about 400 asylum seeking students joined South Portland schools and were bused from the hotels. Dozens more are expected to register over the next month. Oh, joy. That is wonderful. A community of 66,000 total residents now has 400 new asylum-seeking students being pushed into their public schools. And that's not going to throw anything off at all. I'm sure they have plenty of space and plenty of resources. Breakfast and lunch are provided by the hotel in South Portland, using the same state funds it receives to house migrants. For dinner, African dishes are prepared by volunteers. Several days a week, a doctor is there and English classes are provided. Legal clinics are offered at the hotel and transportation is arranged to and from immigration court in Boston. So charitable. Now, one thing is very interesting about these English classes. You see, when I was in Los Angeles and over the time that I was leaving Los Angeles, my girlfriend was an actual Mexican citizen. She was born in Guatemala and has lived at various times in the United States. She has okay English, but a heavy accent, and we were always working on her English. She was also taking English classes, and in those English classes that are recommended by the immigration resources of various cities around the country, she would often have English words used in phrases that reflected a certain political ideology. It was just taken as common knowledge in her Spanish to English classes that Donald Trump was racist and that America was racist about immigrants. These were common themes in her classes. And this is just how these classes go. Why would the same people conducting the slave trade want immigrants to come in and then have different ideas about politics in America? You need to make sure that they all have the same ideas. They all get the same indoctrination. I mean, education. And you might as well put it right in their English classes so they can't avoid it. They need the English classes to be able to function in the new country. So you might as well just get all the political ideology in there as well. In May, the state pledged to build about 200 housing units for asylum seekers in the Portland area and provide rental assistance for two years or until they receive authorization to work from the federal government, said Greg Payne, the governor's senior advisor on housing policy. Asylum seekers are expected to start moving in this fall. From the state perspective, this arrangement offers stable housing for asylum seekers and their families while they await the opportunity to join Maine's workforce and also reduces the use of local community assistance funds, Mr. Payne said. So we have to give them state money because there's not enough money in that community. But really what we need is federal money. So then citizens from all across the country get to pay for this program in Portland. And the program is explicitly justified in the New York Times by being good and necessary to replace an aging white population. Now, why would people seeking asylum from Congo and Angola need to do it in the United States? Well, there's not an answer for that. How did they get here? (laughs) No one knows. Maybe they came over in the plains from Afghanistan, but they're here now. They're seeking asylum. And at some point in the next seven years, there will be some sort of hearing where it is determined whether or not these people actually require asylum and actually should be helped by the American taxpayer. In the meantime, we're just going to assume that all their asylum claims are valid, that they couldn't have gone anywhere else in the world, particularly not to neighboring countries in Africa, and that they must come here and that the American taxpayer must fund their lives until the hearing is resolved. Now, do the globalists create warlike conditions in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Yes. Do they steal elections in Angola? Yes, but you see, after they make everything so bad in those countries, then no one has to feel bad about taking the citizens of those countries and moving them to America where they can replace aging white workers and provide productive labor for American cities. In fact, we're going to build housing units to house all of these people. And of course, the public housing units will be funded by the taxpayers, just like they are in Los Angeles, because in Los Angeles, they're for homeless people. But it doesn't really matter who lives there, right? It's just charity from the government. The government needs to take everybody's money and then build public housing units so that they can house people who the system has left behind. And what kind of jobs are they going to find for these asylum seekers? Well, you can bet that it will be manual labor. But why Portland, Maine? Why is this such a hot spot for asylum seekers? It's certainly nowhere near the southern border. But it's a port city, which makes it a very valuable place, and in very valuable places, you might have certain corporate or global interests wanting to take part in the value of that place. And sure enough, the World Economic Forum has a Portland, Maine Global Shapers hub, and you can find information about this at PortlandGlobalShapers.org. The World Economic Forum has a Global Shapers Hub in 481 different locations around the world, and you can see if your city is on the list. What is the Portland Global Shapers Hub? The Portland Global Shapers Hub is a group of young Portlanders who seek to apply globally inspired ideas to solve local problems here in Portland, Maine. The hub is part of the Global Shapers community an initiative of the World Economic Forum that's committed to improving the state of the world through public-private cooperation while remaining independent and not tied to special interests. You got that? The World Economic Forum itself is not a special interest because they're making everything better and special interest denotes someone that's making everything worse. They're focused on community engagement, creating dialogue, and finding solutions. What are their latest projects, you might ask? Each year in our annual retreats, we identify the most pressing issues facing our community, from civic engagement to the cost of living. Then we brainstorm new initiatives to help solve these problems. Maine girls innovate. Oh, a women forward issue. Portland Participates. Portland Participates is an initiative that seeks to improve the participatory process with an innovative platform that connects residents to elected government officials and cultivates participation for a shared vision. So they're infiltrating the government. They have a program called High Neighbor High Neighbor is an initiative to overcome bias and community segregation in order to create happier, better connected, and more resilient neighborhoods based on a social justice theory of change through story sharing and self-work. High Neighbor is a simple gathering with a big purpose. Resilient Portland is a knowledge map of sustainability programs, initiatives, and resources in the Portland area. Based on initial research into the various environmentally focused organizations, this project has gathered all of these resources into one searchable, easy-to-use platform. And then they have another project called Our Generation. What is Our Generation? Maine has the oldest median age in the country, and our population is projected to continue to shrink for the sake of Maine's economy and the quality of life of all Mainers. More young people need to stay in Maine and to move here from other places. How can that happen? Policymakers should start by listening to what young Mainers need. Young Mainers need to have their voices heard on issues that affect them. But who speaks for young Mainers? One barrier to young people building political power is that there is no group that currently exists that can credibly represent them and in which they are empowered to determine strategic priorities. This project aims to fill that gap. We anticipate the need to work on issues like economic vitality, student debt, and affordable housing. We also expect to discover through grassroots organizing the issues that may not yet have risen to the top of the policy agenda, yet are important to young people's ability to lead successful, healthy, fulfilling lives in Maine. Now, wait a second. How is affordable housing a problem in a community of 66,000 people where one of the biggest issues, as we were just told, is that there aren't enough people there? It's almost like they're telling us that the problem is Portland just doesn't have the right population. And so we need people to be brought in from elsewhere. And those people will not be able to afford housing which is exactly what the New York Times also just told us. Now, most places that wanted to increase their population of young, productive professionals might provide tax incentives that would encourage businesses to move there, perhaps draw in manufacturing or technology or something. But no, that doesn't make any sense. We could just transport in minority ethnic workers who we can then indoctrinate and supply manual labor jobs while paying for them to lead a poor lifestyle that we will define as better than where they came from. This project seeks to build political power by one, bringing together the broadest and most diverse possible group of young people across the political spectrum. (laughs) Except extremist MAGA Republicans. Obviously, no one wants them anywhere. Two, discovering through conversation and surveys the issues we have in common. And I am sure that those conversations and surveys will be absolutely as representative and legitimate as our elections. Three. Articulating priorities and building the skills we need to be effective advocates for those priorities. Including encouraging young Mainers to serve in elected office and other positions of power. And four, holding elected officials and other decision makers accountable to the needs of young Mainers through direct action, voter education, and advocacy. In all our work, we will prioritize inclusiveness disagree with civility, and remain accountable to the priorities of our base. Who's your base? And what exactly are they trying to accomplish here? Why is the World Economic Forum so invested in programs like this? And is this the pilot program? Of course not. They do this all over the place. Again, they already have... 481 global shaper communities. One of them is in Ilhan Omar's Minneapolis. One of the members of that hub has been a member since 2013. Just how much impact have these people had on American cities? What an interesting question that would be. If only there were journalists who wanted to explore that question rather than advocate All of these policies created by the globalists for American cities as the just and right thing to do, because we know that the aging white population needs to be replaced with younger, non-English speaking manual laborers from foreign ethnic minorities. And it turns out there are places in the world where things like this have already been going on for a substantially long time. And one of those is the city of Dubai. This is from news.com.au, an Australian news outlet. This is from March 4th, 2016. Dubai migrant workers, the hidden slaves behind Glamour City. It is a city renowned for glitz, glamour, and boasts the world's tallest building. But there's an ugly side to Dubai that you won't read about in its tourist brochures. Its army of migrant workers. The workers, who are largely from Southeast Asia, are paid well below the prices charged in the city's expensive boutiques and glamorous hotels. The migrant workers are not only at greater risk of exploitation, but are often housed in filthy conditions with little downtime. In short, they are the hidden slaves of a rich city. According to Human Rights Watch, foreigners make up 88.5 percent of United Arab Emirates citizens, with low paid migrant workers being, quote, subjected to abuses that amount to forced labor. While exact figures are not known, it is estimated that there are three million of these workers in the UAE alone. In its World Report 2016, Human Rights Watch said domestic workers were particularly vulnerable to abuse as they don't have the minimal protection afforded by UAE labor law. Domestic workers, that basically means housekeepers or something similar. The Human Rights Group said the kafala sponsorship system, which tied migrants to their employers who acted as their sponsors meant workers were at an even greater risk of exploitation because they could, quote, revoke sponsorship at will, making them liable to deportation, end quote. It is estimated that around 150,000 migrant female workers are employed under this scheme. International Trade Union Confederation President Sharon Burrow last year labeled the migrant workers situation as a form of modern slavery. Reuters reported. The UAE is one of the 10 richest countries in the world with GDP of more than $430 billion a year. However, Human Rights Watch found that part of that wealth was funded by contract workers from some of the world's poorest countries, including Indonesia, India, Philippines, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka and Nepal. In 2012, BBC reporter Ben Anderson traveled to Dubai to film a documentary which detailed the plight of foreign workers. In a three-month investigation, Anderson interviewed workers and witnessed the shocking conditions the men were exposed to. He also found the men had been approached by agents in their villages in Bangladesh, telling the men they will be paid $580 a month. But in reality, they are paid half that, with the agents taking a $4,000 cut in the process. Anderson also found the men were then in debt and too poor to return home, with many working 12-hour shifts six days a week. The shocking conditions were further highlighted last March when hundreds of migrant workers staged a protest over pay. Public protests are banned in the UAE, but angry workers defied the law to demand their fair pay, for their work on the 202HA Fountain Views development site in central Dubai, the BBC reported. One worker told the broadcaster he was paid a monthly salary of just $170, well below what was promised to him. It's strange that they didn't note that these migrants must have been fleeing terrible conditions in their home countries or perhaps climate change. No, it turns out that they were incentivized to leave their home countries in a mass forced migration that was well funded so that they could come in to a richer country, provide manual labor at rates that were below not only standard employment rates, but also below what they were promised when they left while the people recruiting them made out like bandits. If they're getting paid $170 a month as their salary, that's about $2,000 for a year's work, six days a week, 12 hours a day. The agents who recruited them make twice that just for getting them on the plane. But it's not a slave trade, you see. It's definitely not a slave trade. And nothing like that is happening in America, even though it's reported and obvious in America. But you see, you can't talk about it in America because if you talk about it in America, that's racist. And just making sure that you really understand this. If you don't talk about it anywhere else other than America, that is also racist. And hey, if you're having a hard time, if you were put out of work by something the government did in response to a pandemic they created, all you need to do is go become a citizen of the Democratic Republic of Congo or Angola or maybe someplace in Southeast Asia. And then allow yourself to be recruited into the slave trade, where you will then be brought back to America and have everything paid for. And that, my friends, is how you trick the tricksters. Now, because I didn't do much news yesterday or even on Friday's episode, aside from talking about Biden's new Nazi regime, I do want to hit a couple other topics Before I go, and first I want to update on the lawsuit that Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt and Louisiana Attorney Jeff Landry have filed. Talked a bit about that last week. This is a press release from Eric Schmidt's office yesterday. Court orders federal government to produce records from top White House HHS officials in Missouri AG's lawsuit. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt announced today that in his lawsuit against top ranking Biden administration officials for allegedly colluding to suppress freedom of speech, the United States District Court for the Western District of Louisiana granted Missouri and Louisiana's request to compel the federal government to produce records from top ranking White House and HHS officials. This ruling specifically allows the attorneys general to collect the communications between key White House and Department of Health and senior services officials like Dr. Anthony Fauci and White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre and Twitter, Meta and others. Up until this point, the Department of Justice has refused to cooperate with our requests for discovery from top officials in the Biden administration under the guise of executive privilege. Today, the court entered an order that requires the federal government turn over the records we've long requested, said Attorney General Schmidt. The American people deserve answers on how the federal government has colluded with social media companies to censor free speech on these major platforms. We will continue to fight to uncover more of this vast censorship enterprise. The original lawsuit was filed by Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt and Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry on May 5th, 2022. Missouri and Louisiana filed a motion for expedited preliminary injunction related discovery on June 17th, 2022, and that motion was granted on July 12th, clearing the way for Missouri and Louisiana to gather discovery and documents from Biden administration officials and social media companies. The attorneys general filed a joint statement on discovery disputes, asking the federal court to compel the Department of Justice to turn over communications between high ranking Biden administration officials from the White House, HHS and other major social media companies. That request was granted today specifically for the communications of Dr. Anthony Fauci and White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with social media platforms. And they link to the full ruling. Now, obviously, no one has any idea of how long it's going to take for them to get these documents. There may be more appeals and more delays along the process. But so far, if this holds, we can expect to see communications from Anthony Fauci and Corinne Jean-Pierre in their own words or from people in their offices with the big tech companies talking about how to censor American citizens. This is the government directly violating the first amendment rights of American citizens in coordination with the tech companies that we are told are private companies, but are in no practical sense, actually private companies. They were started up on government funded technology and they have former Intel and law enforcement officials throughout their organizations working on these projects. And then, of course, we know about how the DHS was trying to prop up the disinformation governance board. And so we can expect communications along those lines as well. It will be absolutely wonderful to see all of this in their own words, to see the conversations they were actually having. Now, none of this is new. This has been going on for a long time. I have mentioned many times that my own face appears in FOIA documents requested by Judicial Watch from the California secretary of state communicating with the PR firm involved with Joe Biden's fake presidential campaign and the big tech companies to censor me and my political speech as it regards election processes in California. And finally, I have to hit this today. I would be doing each and every one of you a disservice if I did not. I want to update on the status of the Mar-a-Lago raid. This is from Just the News yesterday. Judge's order exposes FBI sloppiness, excessive evidence collection at Trump home. A criminal probe requested by the incumbent president. The seizure of clothing, medical records, tax records, and 500 pages of attorney-client privilege documents not covered by a warrant. The sharing of privileged documents with investigators. More than simply appointing a special master to referee an evidence dispute, U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon exposed this week a Justice Department search of former President Donald Trump's home that was initiated by his chief Democrat rival. That was carried out so sloppily that it violated the quote unquote least intrusive mandate in the FBI agent's manual. And it failed to keep legally protected materials from falling into the hands of investigators. The problems uncovered so far placed Trump quote at risk of suffering injury from the government's retention and potential use of privileged materials. Cannon wrote adding that a future indictment of the ex-president based on the August 8th search of Mar-a-Lago quote would result in reputational harm of a decidedly different order of magnitude. So basically, the government has documents of Donald Trump's that they are not entitled to. But what is our mainstream media telling the child brains in their audience that Donald Trump had government documents that he was not entitled to. Well, that is exactly wrong. Donald Trump, as president, is the decider about what will and can be declassified. And he declassified those documents and retained personal copies of those documents, all legal, all covered by law, not only law regarding the declassification, but law Regarding the president retaining personal copies that is covered in the presidential records act. Donald Trump has done absolutely nothing wrong, but the government has the FBI has the DOJ has, they stole documents from Donald Trump's home that were not covered by the warrant documents that Donald Trump was legally holding documents. They have no right to even see documents that are covered by attorney client privilege. In other words, Cannon was not convinced by the Justice Department's argument that its honor system known as filter or taint teams was adequate to protect the 45th president's constitutional rights. The court takes a different view on this record. She wrote Cannon's Labor Day ruling is simply an opening salvo. Whether Trump's claims of executive privilege, attorney client privilege or an unconstitutional, overly broad search prevail will be decided sometime in the future. But one thing is clear. The FBI and its overseers at the Biden Justice Department bumbled on what was certain to be one of the most scrutinized search warrant executions in modern American history. And that's according to one of the bureau's own former and highly respected executives. The more that's revealed, the more it looks like a kind of sloppy government overreach is in play. Former assistant FBI director of intelligence Kevin Brock told just the news. It seems more than a bit loose to those of us who have executed numerous search warrants. Jonathan Turley, a George Washington University law professor and avowed Democrat, said the judge's ruling cited the sort of FBI failures that in the past would have enraged liberals who have gone silent about such concerns in the Trump era. Many faculty on the left continue the curious objections to a court seeking review of the FBI or not accepting its overbroad claims of authority, Turley wrote Tuesday. It is a bizarre shift that we have seen in other Trump investigations where liberals suddenly express shock that a court would override sweeping national security claims or seek to review the Justice Department's review of material for privilege. Turley noted that there appears to have been mistakes by the taint team and that privileged material as well as an assortment of private material from medical records to tax records were seized. They literally went through Melania Trump's wardrobe and Baron Trump's bedroom. But no worries about Hunter. No worries about Hunter at all. To appreciate the concerns of experts like Brock and Turley, one need only scan the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide, or DIOG, the documents most FBI agents regard as their on the job Bible. The investigative manual requires FBI agents to use the least intrusive means of gathering evidence, especially when it comes to sensitive investigative matters like a probe of a former president where privileges and First Amendment are front and center. That means framing a search in the narrowest possible terms to avoid communications protected by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And they may have meant complications protected by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. I'm not sure if that's the correct word or not. Rigorous obedience to constitutional principles ensures that individually and institutionally, our adherence to constitutional guarantees is more important than the outcome of any single interview, search for evidence or investigation. The manual states, But they overrode all of that and have communicated that directly to the public. They have told the public over and over again that there were national security concerns, perhaps involving something nuclear, maybe nuclear codes. Maybe Donald Trump was giving nuclear codes to the Russians. That's what's been implied for the last nearly month now. Tomorrow, it'll be a month since they raided Mar-a-Lago. And there is still no indication of anything Trump has actually done wrong or anything in those documents that would have justified any of this. It's also worth noting that Donald Trump and his attorneys were working on these records request issues for months with all necessary parties. It is also true that at the time of the raid, the fake president had already been in office for 18 months and there was no raid. It is also true that they applied for the warrant. The warrant was signed for by a judge that hates Donald Trump and has a record online of hating Donald Trump, and the warrant for the search was still not executed for another three days. Merrick Garland has said himself that he deliberated for weeks about whether or not this was the right path forward. So whatever was going on, there didn't seem to be an immediate national security concern in any way related to these documents. So every time they say that, remember, they are lying. But Cannon's ruling exposed significant failures of the FBI agents at Mar-a-Lago to adhere to strict rules governing collection of evidence. For instance, more than 500 pages of documents protected by attorney-client privilege were collected, along with personal medical and tax records, and even an article of clothing. Oh, I hope it's Monica's blue dress. Such overcollection, Brock told the Just the News Not Noise television show, is completely uncharacteristic for FBI agents who are trained to avoid such mistakes, suggesting the former president got worse treatment than a drug dealer or gang member. I don't care if it was a drug trafficker or a child exploiter or whatever. You go into a home, you set up a system where those things that you seize are assiduously documented, said Brock, who oversaw numerous search warrants in his three decade FBI career. They're given a specific tracking number, barcodes, if you will, and each piece is gone through meticulously before you leave the premises to make sure that it's within the scope of the document. The fact that did not happen raises the danger that the judge may eventually throw out the entire search, both because it was overly broad to begin with and then over collected evidence outside the scope authorized by the magistrate, Brock said. So it's possible that we might get a legal ruling on all of this that invalidates the entire raid, the entire search and seizure and it will be amazing to see how the media covers that because they are already losing their minds about the fact that a special master was recommended in the first place. If I'm a prosecutor, I am concerned going forward that this search warrant could be suppressed for those types of reasons, and they would lose access to anything that was collected throughout the search as a fruit of the poisonous tree, he said. The judge also revealed that the DOJ's taint or filter teams failed to keep two pieces of protected privileged documents from reaching frontline investigators. And even after the mistake was discovered, no efforts were made to wall off the evidence, she added. Will that stuff be leaked? You gotta assume it will be. Perhaps most concerning, the filter review team's report does not indicate that any steps were taken after these instances of exposure to wall off the two tainted members of the investigation team, she wrote. Cannon also acknowledged one other fact, citing government documents she saw that troubled experts across the board. The criminal probe began with the National Archives, quote, providing the FBI access to the records in question as requested by the incumbent president. In other words, as just the news reported last week. Biden gave an instruction that was the ignition for a criminal probe of his rival. And while this is something that virtually everyone has simply assumed as true, it is also something that the fake administration has explicitly denied. Corinne Jean-Pierre, when questions are asked about this raid, will refuse to answer them direct questions to the Department of Justice and say that the Department of Justice is completely independent. There is no way that the White House would ever get involved with Department of Justice issues, even though the Department of Justice is part of the executive branch. And it will obviously shock you to learn that Corinne Jean-Pierre has lied again. Representative Austin Scott of Georgia said the judge's revelation about Biden smacks of hypocrisy for Democrats after all their efforts to suggest Trump meddled with DOJ or Ukraine investigations when he was president. And, he added, it raises questions about Biden's denials of any involvement in the probe. All of the things that they accuse President Trump of doing, they're actually doing, Scott told Just the News. I mean, the hypocrisy of it just knows no bounds. If the judge is saying this stuff, then Biden has obviously been lying. That's the bottom line. Brock said the judge's acknowledgement of Biden's role in prompting the start of the FBI probe will only add to public concern. That's a major escalation. Obviously, he said it jumped out to me as well. It said at the request of the incumbent president. Now, that's not going to calm anybody's concerns that there weren't political motivations lurking behind all of these actions. And yes, unless the incumbent president they're referring to is Donald J. Trump, this is going to be pretty problematic for the fake president who we could refer to as F. POTUS, but then that would make the reading of these very documents very confusing because F. POTUS is Trump. And so, of course, we will see how this progresses, but it's awfully interesting to note that once again, all of this makes complete and total sense. It is totally justifiable within the false reality. It's just a problem in the empirical and observable reality where some people actually do have to abide by the law. But the good thing is that the villagers will never get upset about this because, of course, They'll never know about this inside the village. This story about the special master being assigned is just proof of how much worse the monsters are than you could have ever imagined. Donald Trump is so powerful that even as a former president, his sway over everything in the world is just so great that judges We'll do whatever he says. So all of this is actually proof that the system is lined up against Democrats and against the fake administration. Their very precious raid is now under attack. And the only people who could ever attack their raid are the monsters. All of this only makes sense in one direction. If you try it in the other direction, you're racist. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do. By signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree Linktree.com slash I'mYourModerator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the telegram messenger app and going to t.me imyourmoderator I'm your moderator. on social media. You can follow me on truth, social getter and gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on rumble and Bitshoot. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your The merch site is canceled. or go direct